Welcome to the first episode of my new podcast, Leaders on a Mission. I'm Simon Leach, and for the last seven years, I've been working, inspired by working with leaders driven by a mission of creating a sustainable and healthy impact on the world. I've started this podcast to share stories from some of the leaders across the world of life sciences and agri-tech, uh, food agri-technology, about their mission, their journey, and about creating an impact on the world. Now, every time I think of or I speak uh, to my first guest, it puts a big smile on my face. Uh, the first thing to say about introducing Rick is that he's real testament to good guys do win. And, um, you know, Rick Grubel, you know, has had a very interesting career, unique career with global positions at Monsanto, Tyson Foods, DSM, Kyma Biotech, transitioning two years ago into a broader portfolio role which includes uh, board positions at Chemin Industries, MI Proteins, as well as work working as an operating partner for Payne Schwartz. Now, Rick is a jet setter, and having lived and worked in five countries, he loves red wine and skiing and can be frequently found on the Telluride Golf Club in Colorado, even after it's been snowing. So he's married to Ellen, he has four kids, and uh, I actually remember meeting Rick for the first time uh, at a bar in the um, a hotel in San Francisco. Um, and um, I, I just think, you know, it was an interesting uh, meeting you. I, I just hugged you. And uh, it was, it was, you know, it was just such a great delight. And I don't go around hugging, you know, professional contacts of mine, to be honest, too often. But it was just, just a natural kind of thing to want to do, basically, when I met you. So, um, so thanks for joining the show, Rick. And uh, how's life? Well, Simon, thank you very much. That was so kind. Um, I remember the hug, honestly. And, uh, and, and it may sound a bit strange, but it's because we, I think we had a three or four or five year relationship of uh, telephone calls and conversations, emails, etc. before we ever met in person. Absolutely. Absolutely. But still, I've, I do talk to plenty of people for three, four, five years, and I don't hug them when I meet them, in fairness. Um, <laughs> You know, I don't know about you. I don't know. Are you a hugger? I mean, do you? you must, well, uh, I did live in I did live in Latin America for nine years. So yes, yeah, I am you a did. Hugger. That's true. You did. That's true. You did. Yeah, yeah. I'm a hugger. Uh, um, yeah, no, it was great. It really was. It was great. And I, I think I'd, I'd love to, you know, go back actually, go right, right back to the kind of start for you. And I'm thinking, uh, you know, Master Rick Grubel growing up. Just wanting to understand you know, you know, what some of the major influences were that shaped, you know, your ideas and inspiration, really. Yeah, I'd say uh, it's, it's funny when you reflect back, right, on why did you turn out the way you are for good and for bad, right? And uh, I, I, without a doubt, I had uh, my parents were uh, children of German immigrants, uh, both of them, one German, one Austrian, but Germanic. And um, having that influence in my childhood of uh, a set of rules, uh, values, guidelines, and uh, and and if you you know tried to waver a little bit outside of them, there was usually a punishment um, that was involved. There was something about doing things the right way that yeah. was instilled at a, a very. Or, or at least doing things their way, <laughs> maybe not the right way, but <laughs> their way. So this ability to um, uh, to be not to be unsatisfied if you didn't achieve something, 
the way you wanted it to, that the outcome wasn't there, you were dissatisfied. And uh, that clearly had an influence on me. Um, my, my father was a, quite an outgoing, extroverted person and to, with a huge focus on customer service mm. and interpersonal skills and treating people the right way with mm. respect and value um, and listening to them to understand um, that clearly influenced me. And I've been kind of a customer satisfaction maniac my whole career. Um, and, and then growing up in an environment, and I grew up, I was born in St. Louis, Missouri, and grew mm. up in the southern part of the state, a place called Lake of the Ozarks and the Ozarks. And, and that was a very narrow place. And so I had this, um, I don't know, drive to see something bigger, to do something different than what most of my you know, childhood peers were thinking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when, when did that kind of, when was that, when did that reveal itself to you? When was it apparent that uh, it was, uh, you were going to- Just before, just probably just, just before university, probably just before university. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, listen, we didn't have the resources to, to do that. I didn't travel much. We didn't take holidays as, as, a, as a child. And so I went off to university. That was a big deal to leave home and, and to actually go away to school. Um, and I had to finance it myself, right? And, and that was probably the first time I learned I could actually do it, right? I can do this on my own. And from there, it was, okay, what else? What else? So you kind of, it sounds like you kind of, you grew in confidence from that, it sounds like. For sure, in confidence. Um, yeah. Probably a little bit in competence as well, but uh, uh, for sure in confidence that, okay, I can make this my, my own way. Yeah. Yeah. And what did, what did your dad do for, for uh, your mom and dad do for, for, for careers actually? Yeah. Well, my, my father worked for 20 something years at Anheuser-Busch. Uh, my mother was a bookkeeper, a bookkeeper. My, okay. my father worked at the brewery. He was, uh, his first job when he was 18, he was Augie Bush's elevator boy. Right. So the, <laughs> the son of the founder of, he was the elevator, they used to have elevator boys, right? Anyway. Um, had lots of beer in the house. You must have had lots of beer in the house growing up, right? There was always beer in the house. Yes, that's true. It was given away. It was given away in those days. Um, and then he ended up spending a lot of time in the food and beverage industry. So hotel and restaurant management, food and beverage management, those type of things that are really, you know, he wasn't home, right? Working nights, weekends, all those things that uh, resorts and hotels, but very customer centric type of uh, responsibilities. Right. And that clearly rubbed off at such a young age, essentially, you know? So Yeah. Yeah. No doubt about it. Yeah. You know, the other thing, the whole immigrant family, it was my grandfather. I always, every time I made a change or a move in my career, I always looked looked at it from the perspective of how much risk am I really taking? Mm. Because often things seem like they're high risk to make an international move or to accept a different responsibility in an area that maybe you don't have experience in or to take a job where the, the, the business or the area is actually not performing well. And you're, you're, you're charged with fixing it. Okay. Um, I always reflected back on, uh, my the risk my grandfather took when 
1930, he immigrated from Germany to the U.S. with, you know, $20 in the bottom riding steerage in a cruise ship. And he didn't speak English. And Amazing. he took real risk. He took, he yeah. changed my life, my children's life, um, my grandchild's life, because he took real risk. Mm. So I always said, what I'm doing is really not that risky. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant perspective, isn't it? It really is. You know, it's um, yeah, similar with my family as well, actually, coming over a little bit earlier from Eastern Europe, actually, probably in around 19, you know, 1910 or, you know, around that kind of time. But uh, you're quite right. When you look at it through that lens, going to a strange country with, you know, no money, no language, it, uh, it, um, yeah, it does give that perspective. You know, but clearly, you know, you've gone through life being able to assess risk and, you know, take on, um, you know, exciting roles where you have put yourself out there at risk of failure, basically, you know, so clearly that kind of mindset's really helped you to, you know, to have some perspective and, um, you know, and manage that, actually. Yeah, I don't know if I, I might have received this advice or counsel early in my career, or maybe it just developed, but I, I think I grew to find that most of the changes or roles, responsibilities you you take on um, really aren't as risky as you perceive them. And if you make your best effort and you connect with all the stakeholders and people that need to be aware of what's happening and reach out for help, okay, um, even if you don't, achieve the the target you get great feedback for the effort that you put into it mm. um, and, and often you if it's a really risky assignment probably four or five other people have already failed in it and so you have this ability to uh, make progress yeah. right and if you do it it's it's not so much what you do it's how you do it yeah. that matters mm. Mm. And explain that a little bit more in terms of how you do it, in terms of um, what that looks like. I, I, I think a, a leader's role, and, um, and I don't mean leader in the sense of um, the business leader. You can be a leader as a sales guy or an, a scientist or uh, the guy on the operations line um, in the plant. The leader's role is to create the culture. Okay? And it, if you create the culture where people can be engaged and feel that they're really part of something, mm. okay? they're listened to, they're respected, and they're able to do their jobs, right? You trust them and they do their jobs, right? Um, it's amazing what happens. It, it's just amazing what happens. So it started as a young, when I was in a young uh, sales, first, first entry-level sales role. And I figured out quickly that actually my job wasn't to sell more. My job was to make my customers successful. And so if I made my customers successful, everything else took care of itself. And at 27, I became a people manager, sales manager, had 13 people. 
and I really didn't know what to do. There was no training given at that time to how to be a people manager, et cetera. So I just thought to myself, well, if I make my salespeople successful, like I used to make my customers successful, then mm -hmm. everything else works, will work out. And so my job was to make my salespeople successful. Mm. And so in a sense, I worked for them. They didn't work for me. Okay. And they felt it. My job was to knock the hurdles down so they could run faster in a sense. Now, did I have to make some people changes? Sure, absolutely. There were a few people that just couldn't get there. They, and it wasn't because they didn't have talent. It's just that their talent didn't match the competencies required in the sales mm -hmm. role. They, they should have been doing something else, product development, marketing, whatever it was. But um, when, when the talent matches and then there's the support there to make them successful, um, great things happen. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it's quite on the contrary when you sometimes see great salespeople elevated into senior sales positions, but sometimes approach it and come at it with an ego and come at it with such a different viewpoint from what you've just outlined, actually. And um, yeah, and that's, that's why you hear that people say, well, not, you know, good salespeople usually don't make good sales managers. Um, uh, there's some truth in that, because it, People can't get by their own, you know, importance. And, but that doesn't, my whole philosophy there worked just as well when I was leading the global business. You know, my job was to make the regional VPs successful and their teams and businesses successful. I always felt like I worked for my people, not the other yeah. way around. Yeah, yeah, a great, a great philosophy. And so when you think about the time at Monsanto, your career at Monsanto, 20 years there, um, and, you know, for you, you know, you had, you had, you know, really some interesting positions and roles there across the world. And I always remember you mentioning around going out to uh, Brazil, it was at the time, not speaking the language for a big role, moving the family out there, for instance, as well. And, uh, and you know, you had a successful career there. Well, what were the key to really, you know, what was the key to success there and to have the kind of career that you had at Monsanto at that time? Yeah, it was a funny, Simon, it was a funny experience because um, I, I was, a, at the time I was a sales manager or something in, in, uh, in Iowa and I put on, I wrote a personal development plan, right? Like most people do. And of course I, I just aspirationally put something I'd like to have on there, which was an international assignment just to broaden me. Cause I was basically a Midwest kid, kind of a redneck from Southern Missouri, very green, right. From a global perspective. And um, so I said, great, I'll get broadened. And <laughs> I, it took five years to get that international assignment. And what I basically found out was I didn't have anything to offer an international region, why did they need me? Why, why would they want to take on the expense, the hassle of somebody coming in who didn't know the culture, the language, the business? Um, so I had, I, I had to figure out a way to make myself actually valuable, okay? And marketable to these international businesses because they decide they're gonna bring somebody in or out. How did you do that then? I, it was marketing. I went into marketing roles, product, and I learned a lot about market research, branding, advertising, value propositions, 
um, new product launches, managing that product development cycle. Um, and, and I did it in the U.S., of course, several examples of successful product launches. And all of a sudden then, the regions that were strong in sales but weak in marketing were interested. And the first one was Argentina. This was in the mid '90s, and of course, my view of an international assignment was, you know, Canada or maybe uh, Belgium, Brussels sounds like a nice spot to go. <laughs> we'll go to Europe. <laughs> no, no, no. It's Argentina, and it, they're six years into democracy. Um, you know, just coming out of hyperinflationary times, and um, they had about a thousand people, of which ten or twelve spoke good English. So you, I had to learn Spanish. It was part of the deal because from day one, all of the meetings were conducted in Spanish. So uh, did, did you start crazy. from zero? Did you start from zero oh, understanding of Spanish? I think it was negative. It was <laughs> negative. I had some high school French and it was worthless. <laughs> you forget all that. <laughs> um, but the greatest thing happened developmentally. When you have to learn a new language from zero. And it was absolutely critical to my business, my personal performance. Mm. You learn to listen, to understand, literally understand each word, okay? Now that's not how I'd listened in the past. Yeah. Up until that point in my life, I only listened to like, help me formulate my next, you know, whatever I thought was a brilliant thought. So I was listening to respond. No, no, no. This was a complete change. Listening to understand. Oh my God. Yeah. Changed my life. Really? <laughs> well, I, I, because then I applied it to English. Yeah. I applied it to my mother tongue, the same principles to really listen to understand. The second thing that Argentine culture taught me was to be patient. And okay? um Americans in general are just not patient um, as a culture. We want things fast, quick. And I was an extreme example of that. I, I'm still, patience wouldn't be ever, would never be listed as a strength for me, but I am so much better because of, you don't change a culture. And if there's a culture that's patient, it's Argentina. They will wait, they will suffer. They will um, allow a process to happen, okay? Lunches take two to three hours, right? That used to drive me crazy. And then we'd stay at the office till nine o'clock at night. I'm like, why are we spending all this time at lunch when we could be leaving early? No, 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 you don't get it. That was part of how decisions were made. Relationships were formed. Mm. Engagement occurred. Um, it was a really an eye-opening experience that allowed me to take some developmental um, tools to other countries, regions in my life, for sure, even my personal life. That's fantastic. Yeah, really, uh, really interesting, actually. Even more so, even more patient. And, you know, when you think about Asia, for instance, which is mm -hmm. you know, also very interesting kind of culture. And how do you compare the, you know, the challenges of working in Asia and then Argentina, for instance? Totally different. And it's funny you bring up Asia because I moved from, from Buenos Aires to Singapore was yeah. my next role running kind of the majority of, of Asia Pacific. And um, 
I found that most of what I learned in Argentina, uh, it didn't translate at all. <laughs> the, the fact that you had to be culturally aware and sensitive, um, for sure. The, the listening to understand, for sure. Um, but, in, but in Asia, there was this need to listen for what people did not say. Whereas in Argentina, they are very direct. You listen to, for what people say. Okay? So when you start listening to understand, you have to listen for what they don't say, mm. which is a really interesting skill. Yeah. The, yeah. the highest challenge culture that I ever had to work in, but also the, one of the most rewarding experiences. Um, there's always the meeting before the meeting and the meeting after the meeting, and you better have your people there because you're not going to be in either one of them, right? Because it's going to be all locals. Um, you must save face every, in every single decision you make organizationally with customers. Um, you think about saving face. You would never criticize somebody in front of a group on your team internally. I mean, there were just so many lessons. Um, and, and that actually translated quite well. The, the Asia learning translated back to South America with Brazil or to Europe. Um, that was invaluable. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think they called it, I remember reading a book about this in Asia, listening to the wind, I've heard it referred to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what they don't yeah. say. <laughs> it's great. Exactly. <laughs> I don't think I don't think I'll be very good in the Asian culture, to be honest. I'd struggle <laughs> with that one. I think the uh, yeah. But no, it's great. And you can really see how how great you would fit in global positions, you know, the experience and the the knowledge of different cultures and different ways of working. It's very difficult in those environments to find people that are the right fit for those kind of global positions, actually. It really is. You know, ultimately it's any, almost every job is just about problem solving, right? Whether you're a, you're a doctor or a researcher or a, um, an educator, you're trying to solve problems, right? Helping somebody learn, whatever it might be. And in, in business, there's, uh, there's a, like a level of problem solving. Okay. There's, there's the, you know, the internal problems you have to solve to be successful as a company. There's the problem of getting the customer to, you know, engage with your, your product, whatever it might be, your service, um, and, and remain loyal, keeping them, right? That stickiness, right? Um, then there's the competitive complexity, right? Well, you're getting challenged all the time and people are trying to disrupt you and make your life crazy. Um, and, and then when you layer on top the cultural complexity, mm. okay, of trying to do all of that in seven or eight different, you know, big regions around the world. And I really, that motivated me, that stimulated me. Let's figure out the cultural complexity of all this other stuff at the end. Now we're going to do it in China or we're going to try to do that in Brazil or we're going to, you know, do that in Russia. What's that going to be like? Um, that was fun. And having lived and worked in a bunch of these different places, um, I, I think uh, certainly helped me better understand, better listen for sure.
Yeah, remember, great, great. And I, I always remember talking to, to Linda at, uh, um, at uh, DSM, um, who you, you, I think, had hired you in and you worked for. And uh, he, I always remember him describing you as someone very selfless. And he said, very unique in the context that you put the comp at times you would put the company before you and what was right for your career and where you were at that time. And that I felt 20 years of, I haven't heard that too often, to be honest. And, um, you know, it is a rarity. And I just wanted to explore that a little bit further. Like where, where did you put yourself, um, put the company first? And how did you, when you were working up that decision and you were working at your personal kind of goals and interests, how did you balance that with, with what the company needed? Yeah, that's a, yeah. I had never thought about it with the, about the balance part before. And we'll come back to that. Um, I think the concept is that um, the, the business was more important than me for sure. And um, if that meant I wasn't going to do something in my career um, that maybe I would have enjoyed or liked, um, so be it. Because if the business isn't successful, then the rest of us can't be. And I think that goes all the way back to what I was telling you about um, with my customers. Um, I remember I was maybe accused, or that might be too strong of a word, but I felt my customers were more important than my own business when I was a sales guy. Okay. And uh, although, you know, achieving my targets was never a challenge because of that philosophy. My customers rewarded me with loyalty and business. Um, but this idea that maybe I took their side, but I never saw it that way because there's only one side. They, basically the customer side yeah. was the way I saw it. It's like, what do you mean we and them? It's them. There is no we and them, it's them. So, um, I, that just grew. And so when I was leading a global business, then, um, you know, talking to the board about an acquisition or a strategy change, or um, it was always the business first. And, you know, that selflessness, I think, only builds your own credibility and, and mm -hmm the integrity you have internally, because frankly, the people in throughout the organization, organization, they know, they see it. They're not, nobody's, they're not ignorant. They know what's going on and who really cares about the customer or them as, you know, employees, team members, they know, they can tell. And who's in it for themselves versus who's in it for them or who's in it for their customers. Um, that was the, the model. So this idea of balance, I, I never thought about it that way, mm. that there would be, how did I balance it? It was not a balance. It was only about, this was a philosophy, a principle, a value of how I wanted to, to lead. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing. And, um, and what about other values as you did? I mean, you spoke about those you know, you spoke about your, some of the childhood, you know, growing up and some of the values you inherited from your, you know, from your parents. And you spoke there about some of that customer selfless 
kind of um, value as well. Um, did you ever, across the organizations you work within, did you ever have to adapt to a different, you know, when you were selecting which firms you were going to go and work for, how important was the fit with your way of doing things and culture with the company and the way they operated? And was there ever discourse around that or adjustments that needed to be made? Yeah, there was, there, there were, you know, nobody gets everything that they want, right? It just doesn't work out that way. So uh, there was also awesome, always this conflict that I would run into. And it was either because there was a leader that saw it differently um, or the leader saw it the same way, but he, but he had this culture established that he wanted to change. Okay. And I was um, brought in to help do that. Uh, and it was always, uh, and it always didn't work out. I mean, frankly, there was, there was, there were times where that just didn't, the conflict was too great and I would change and do something else then. Okay. You have to make a decision. What's more important, right? Um, because if you're not fulfilled, if it's not fun, frankly, that's mm. what fulfillment was. If it's just not fun anymore, then you better, you better, better do something else. But those, that was uncompromisable. Okay, mm. that was always uncompromisable. Yeah, that we weren't going to have the right culture with the right type of of um, focus, priority on you know making the people in the organization successful, making our customers successful, um, and and really getting the whole organization externally focused. Right? Yeah. Um. Then you know you better find something else to do. And I, yeah. that was always my advice to people. If you listen, if you don't think you're a fit, okay, then don't suffer. Don't sit and suffer, you know, find something where you're a fit. Find, find something else. Yeah, absolutely. 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 Tell me, I'd always got the impression of your time at DSM, um, you know, really splurging and opening the uh, checkbook and buying companies left, right and center at that time. That seemed to be a, such a, a great time. Um, how many companies did you, you know, on your watch, did you purchase when you were running the nutritional products business? I, you know, I think we did about six or seven acquisitions in a six-year period there, mm. five and a half year period. Um, and in my time at, at Monsanto, I had done maybe seven or eight and about the same number at Tyson Foods. So, there was, there was this um, experience that had come from, um, you know, one, how do you find a, a suitable acquisition? And then how do you make the fit happen so that they want to be acquired? And then do an integration that, mm. you know, works for both the new company and the existing organization. So that skill set was something that I, you know, was really fortunate to, um, it was never planned, right? It just, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time doing these acquisitions and integrations and learned, um, you know, the, what a good process is. And not all of them were great, but, you know, it's, it's hard, right? That's a really hard thing. But for the most part, they did very well. They did mm. very well. And they've gone on to be very successful. And, and the people that, you know, if you can maintain, it's a great talent opportunity, right? An acquisition and that those people are, 
you know, a bit shell-shocked when you come into a new culture that's very different than another. And that just takes time. Takes yeah. Time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, is that the most challenging aspect of it from strategy and ideation all the way through to integration? Is it literally the amalgamation the of those, the people <laughs> and the cultures and uh, yeah. That's it. Without a doubt, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, um, and then it was always interesting when you, 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 you moved to Israel and um, you became CEO of Kyma Biotech. And I know you were working with them on the board, but it was really striking having spent your career in corporate global roles. You're now running a kind of CEO of an Israeli startup, you know, biotech. And uh, I, yeah, really, you know, for you, um, what were the real differences you know, the, the challenges facing adapting to that culture and that way of working for you. Yeah, this was a kind of a crazy, and this is another one where you think back, are you really taking any risk here, right? <laughs> and I, I was, uh, I, when I left DSM, my plan was to basically, you know, move on to consulting and board work, that type of things. And, and I was already on the board of this uh, Israeli startup, AgTech, and, and when the board heard that I was um, leaving DSM, they said, hey, why don't you move to Israel for a couple of years and help us transition this business? We needed to expand one business in Brazil, a castor seed business. And I had a lot of experience, obviously, in Brazil, spoke the language. Uh, we needed to sell off another business, a vegetable seed, tomato, high value tomato and pepper business, um, um, which we ended up doing. Um, and we had this core technology piece that was uh, struggling a bit at the time, um, trying to figure out which crop it best fit into. It was a genomics platform to basically increase uh, productivity using a genomics technology. And, and so the, the idea of moving to a startup that had a hundred and some odd people and uh, in the Northern part of Israel and uh, was, a, quite a different, quite a different uh, change than anything I'd done before. Right? Luckily, I knew the team already because I'd been on the board a few years. I knew the strategy and the business. That was not an issue. So there was no integration piece there other than moving to Israel, which ended up being one of the greatest experiences of our lives for Ellen and I living there. You know, you learn a lot about yourself when you live outside your own country. and You learn a lot about your own country too, good and bad. Um, but you also learn about a lot about the country you're moving to. And it's often not what you see on, you know, CNN or whatever, the BBC. It's quite different when you're there on the ground. And uh, that was a tremendous learning experience, both personally and professionally. On the professional side, it was about cash management. Mm. Okay. That's what a startup is. You've got five to 10 people and they do everything, right? They're the same people, they're loaded. Focus is the number one challenge because there's just so many opportunities and things that need to be done and you can't do it all. And then cash, managing cash. What's your burn rate, where you're at, how much revenue you're bringing in. Um, and, and doing that um, was completely different than the type of experience you have at a, when you're with a large multinational and um, the focus is so much different. We had one meeting a week. That was it, one, for two hours, okay? 
Um, everything else was informal connections and you just made decisions. You made them fast, right? You just so, literally made decisions. <laughs> so different, so different. I'm sure it really helped knowing the team and knowing the board, right? Um, you know, that really helped. But um, it's always fascinating because I, you end up, I, I end up assessing and looking at a lot of people that have corporate backgrounds and their possible fit into startups and not one size fits all um but what do you think if you had your experience broadly within corporate world what things do you think make you successful what are the competencies or things that you need to have in order to be successful in that environment yeah. you think? well what you know clearly i brought some things from um, a corporate experience that helped right structure and process okay um organizational design and talent management and personal development for the, the team, putting that together um, was, was hugely valuable. And just team building in general, the process of how do you get people to integrate and work together, and engage. Um, that was, they'd never had anything like that. Uh, on the other hand, every strength to an excess is a weakness, right? You, when you overplay a strength, it's a weakness. And so, there were times where I would come at it, uh, whatever the issue was, and they would clearly say, oh, that's big company. That isn't yeah. going to work. That is not going to work. <laughs> right? But they all felt comfortable telling me, absolutely, we're, that's not going to work. So um, we had to have that trust in each other that we could say, listen, you know, that's not going to work here. It's, we need to be more nimble and, and we need to do it with a much lower budget. Yeah. Yeah. Usually that's how it played. Yeah. But it, it was tremendous, tremendous. And how long does it adapt into, I mean, for, for you, quick to adapt to cultures and ways of working. Is it the same? You can adapt different countries, the language. Is it just a mindset? Is it about, um, you know, as you've identified earlier, for instance, were you picking it up, uh, say, after 18 months, you know, a, a lot quicker than you were to start with? Um, maybe you're right on that. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not exactly sure about that, to be honest. It's just, if you have this ability, and I've worked with a number of people over the years that have very similar experiences to mine, if you have the ability to translate the adaptation phase that when mm. you come in new, because the first month or so, is amazing because you're learning so much. It's, yeah, it's just, um, it's so different and you're just constantly surprised, right? And interested, it, the curiosity piece just dominates. Um, but then it gets really hard. It gets really hard. That's the cultural shock piece that you can't get things done. And you've lost all your systems and networks, everything, how you've made your life happen, both personally and professionally is all gone. And you got to rebuild that. That's the, you get through that piece, then you make it, right? When you rebuild your systems, um, both professionally and personally in a, in a new country, culture, environment, then it goes. Some people don't make it through that though, right? That's, yeah, that's taking a lot on, basically. Language, uh, culture, I mean, it's, yeah, absolutely. But I'm sure you're richer for the experience. Well, for sure, because I mean, it's not just my life, my wife's life, but our children, yeah. they're all in kind of global roles and 
couple of them are going to be living outside the States here shortly as soon as we get back to doing those kind of things. Um, changed their lives. It was the biggest gift through all of this. And it, it, and it made me better professionally having been in a startup and lived through the challenges that a startup has um, on a daily basis. So to the point now where I'm the chairman of a startup, an Israeli-based startup, um, and I'm working with a private equity firm that has a growth uh, equity business that looks at smaller businesses. And I can relate to those, um, those businesses and those teams in a way that uh, most of the people uh, that work for the PE firm cannot. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. I've been there. I've been in their shoes. I, I yeah. understand it. And in some ways I work, uh, you know, I'm a filter for them. Going back to, to Payne Schwartz, the fantastic private equity firm that, I, that I'm able to work with. Um, and I'm a great filter or bridge between the, the smaller businesses and, the, and the, the Payne Schwartz team saying, hey, listen, you know, they've got five people that are doing all the work here. We can't, uh, we need to let them stay externally focused and um, we can't treat them like a 200 million uh, revenue or 400 million revenue portfolio company. It just doesn't work that way. Doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, with, with regards to, you know, you think about you know, the theme of the podcast for me around connecting with a mission uh, as it were. And, um, you know, you spent your career in, you know, really across that value chain, right? Completely, which has always been really interesting about your career. Um, that food and that value chain. Well, where have you had the most kind of connection with a mission cause with the work that you've done, for instance? Yeah, food, egg, nutrition. And I'm, I'm a microbiologist by training, but never, I worked in a lab for a very short period of time and found it uh, that there just wasn't enough um, teaming complexity there. Uh, I needed more of the, of the, external focus there than I was than I could have ever gotten research okay but I, the fact that I've done it and I have that technical background mm. uh, I, al allows me to to interact with that technical community in a way because what I like to do is find that technology whatever that science is and then figure out what's the value that we're creating with this and how do we capture it okay that's the puzzle that's, that's fun to solve. And then to do that uh, on a global basis, right? Because um, it's going to be a little different in each part of the world. You have to tailor it and you have to let those country teams tailor it. It doesn't come from the inside out. It comes from them back, back to you. Um, so when I think about my career across food, ag, nutrition, um, it, it's really been what drives me there is, you know, making the world a better place. Mm. So higher quality food at a lower cost produced in a more sustainable way. Mm. Um, and when you do that and you can help um, a smallholder farmer in Indonesia, um, because with your seeds, he's able to increase his yields to a level he's never had before. And you give him a management system around those seeds, whatever crop it is. And with that incremental profit, he can send his children to school, to university, which he never thought he'd be able to do before. You change people's lives. Lives, yeah. 
Yeah. You, you change people's lives. And, uh, or if it's larger scale agriculture and, and you're able to do things more efficiently, more sustainably, um, and it helps lower the cost of food. So it makes it accessible for a greater portion of the people on this planet. All, all of that is just tremendously mm. rewarding. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And have you felt that throughout your career, you know, that connection to, you know, that, that farmer, to, uh, to people eating healthier food, to the broader journey of bringing more sustainable food and nutrition to the people, as it were? Is it something that's kind of kept you going and uh, kept you motivated? Totally personal, totally yeah. personal. And that story of the farmers, that's... He told me that story. I was standing right. in his rice rice field. Okay, um, and you know today I'm I'm fortunate enough to be on the board of Kemen Industries, which is a fantastic Iowa-based company that is very very global. That um, works in the kind of ag and uh, human nutrition space. Um, uh, my proteins is uh, an Israeli startup that's uh, looking at taking sweet proteins, producing them via fermentation and substituting sugar with a protein. So a carb with a protein, with, uh, which will solve probably the biggest uh, global health problem we have. And these type mm -hmm. of um, experiences are just so rewarding personally, not just professionally. Yeah, absolutely. I've missed Ilan uh, this year because I normally see him at uh, traveling around the world and uh, and um, um, haven't seen him this year, but uh, hopefully I will next year. But, um, but Rick, listen, that has that's fantastic. I really thank you for your time. It's been an absolutely delight to, you know, listen to some of your experiences and your journey and your influences and, uh, you know, really um, insightful. And thank you for sharing. Really appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Simon. It uh, was, was a lot of fun. And uh, I wish you a lot of success here with your podcast. I think it's pretty cool that you're doing this. Oh, and I look forward, to, look forward to listening.